Welcome everyone to episode number, what, is, what are we on now? Lucky 13. <laughs> 13. Yeah. 13, yeah. Nice. Uh, yeah, we definitely need to get Craig a hat. He needs one. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe in a, in a yellow or... It's bad white. luck to have hats indoors. Is it? Yeah. Is it bad to record episode 13? Yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> also, look, all, the only other thing you can do is actually have an umbrella inside and um, maybe a ladder and a mirror. Right, right. Yeah. We should have recorded it on Friday as well. The other Friday. Friday. Oh, yeah. yeah. So we should have gone straight to 10, like Windows 10. You know, we should have skipped episode 9. Yeah, yeah. Don't tell you the story of how Office went, skipped a version because they didn't want to call it version 13. No. Oh, my God. So <laughs> we're building Office 12. Which is obviously internally it's version twelve, and then there's a, there's a discussion about okay when that's finished we move on to thirteen. Nobody wanted to call it version thirteen. They, they, so um, it was just skipped. I'm I'm pretty sure I haven't looked, but I'm pretty sure that's what went out the door. There's nothing called version thirteen. Oh, they should have called it Office It is version thirteen, like inter like in reality, but you call it version fourteen then. You know, no, no, I think that's the actual version number. The version number. I think I'm pretty sure it was Word 13 where you add like an image and then it breaks the whole layout. <laughs> oh no, that's that's all that's all Word version. Sorry. <laughs> oh, that's rough. That's rough. <laughs> so yeah, podcast topic today. There was a couple ideas ahead: serverless versus like dedicated servers, and also I'm curious like how people consume their like news or tech news. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe start off with the news one. How do you, I, I use RSS, so yeah, I, just, I, just, RSS? I just follow you on Twitter, Patrick. <laughs> that, that's actually my answer. I just follow Twitter uh, and follow Patrick on Twitter. <laughs> whatever Pat says, that's that's all I read. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. or, or more more to the point, whatever Patrick disagrees with, it's it's worth checking out. <laughs> you know, on a serious note, that that's actually in a way what I do. So yeah. I follow my friends and what they post on social media and on you know our own private chat um, tools and whatnot. And if because they usually act as a bit of a filter, if they see something interesting, they'll post it. I usually read whatever they post, and it creates an absolute <laughs> um, echo chamber. A complete mm -hmm. bubble, but it's effective filtering. There's just so much random crap out there. But it's a curated echo chamber, right? Yeah. So it's it's the echo chamber of people you've worked with, you like, you know, you understand what their motivations and drivers are, and then you go, all right, I'll, I'll check that out. I mean, yeah. And I, I sort of treat uh, Twitter like that too. You know, I'll, oh, I'll yeah. turn Twitter into a complete echo chamber bubble of the, the people I actually want to hear from. Don't you know that? Who said that? I was just Vincent's, uh... Oh, sorry. Just mute, just mute yourself. There's a button yeah. called mute. Oh, yeah. Um, I was saying, I was going to say, like, uh, you know, actually, I use Google News, but that in itself is also an echo chamber because now, like, Google just, like, picks up, like, whatever I usually browse or look up on YouTube, and then it creates this world where, you know, I just, I just keep looking at the same thing, like, over and over. I, I don't like it, but I don't know. I'm just getting used to it. Because when I go on Google News, it immediately has stuff that I'm somewhat interested in. And, uh, you know, I'm stuck in this circle of just keep looking at the similar stuff over and over. I don't yeah. like it. 
And it's the same yeah. if you go read a, a you know a new site or in any play, any single location you look at, they're all little echo chambers, um, and yeah. they're all fairly politicized, and it's hard to get any objective views of anything. Yeah, there are some sources that are slightly out of the echo chamber, like Hacker News is just basically everyone tech, right? So yeah. it's it's a bit of a free for all for all the tech people. So it, it widens out the circle a bit. Um, I actually attend that ThoughtWorks Tech Radar every six months, mm. which does their little radar blips of what's coming in, what's coming out from, at least that's farming out from all of their consultants in all their different projects. And I often get things that I just, I'd never come across on my day-to-day -day basis, you know? So yeah. uh, that, that's been a handy one for me too. Some, you know, if you can find those little conferences and things like that, it helps a lot. What do you use, Nigel? Uh, yeah, um, same sort of things. Yeah, um, I, I mean, it's funny actually. Like, like um, Vincent was saying, uh, I, you know, I, lo I look at a lot of things on YouTube, and so I have a YouTube feed that's very curated towards like things I might be interested in. And so, if anything's growing in the community, I tend to hear about it. Um, yeah. Does, does anyone use like fully blogs or like use RSS? I used to. I stopped as soon as Google killed Google Reader, which was a sad day. Yeah. Another Google death. There's, yeah. there's a few there's a few like news sites as well, which are often like sort of like the evolution of blogs. So, you know, like tech journalists who have their own sort of blogs and sort of become known as their own place, mm. you know. So um like I, I listened to uh, read the platformer one with Casey News. Yeah, same. Um the the information is a good news uh one um even if you can't afford their subscriptions which are pretty high the actual daily sort of digest is also good on general tech topics but they're not really tech things like you're not going to get tools or stuff out of it it's more business deals and stuff like that mm. but yeah you gotta you gotta curate multiple sources and have you know a good sort of routine to just filter it and just only go into the things that pique your interest because you could spend all week just going through a day's worth of uh stuff that people want you to pay attention to the, the one okay. good thing i found is with the rise of independent journalism you can follow independent journalists so you can choose an individual that you might like um, and not not the newspaper but the actual person and they publish on you know generally on their own own site and maybe on twitter and other places and but you can just follow the individual and that's yeah, I do that sometimes too. Or is it like an email newsletter? Like, do you use those? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. use those. Because yeah. there was a podcast I was listening to the other day, uh, which was this guy called John Gruber, who sort of was Apple writer guy, and it's really interesting. He was saying like one of the reasons why he thinks email newsletters have taken over, like taken off so much, is because like in your email client, you just know you're not going to scroll down and get like crappy ads like popping in or like a pop up. Like it's actually the limitation of the technology that makes the experience better. Whereas like you go to like half the freaking commercial news sites, or whatever, and it's like just a shitty reading experience. So yeah. plus, plus your plus your buzzfeedy headlines just for the sake of it. Um, you know, everything's in outrage mode and you just go, ah, forget that. Yeah, yeah. I actually in my I do that. I, the thing I love is that, but I also have images turned off in my email client. So I don't even yeah. see any images, it's just text. Mm. So, so that's mm. an interesting point. The better the technology becomes, the more we get uh, susceptible to spam and advertising and all kinds mm. of crap going at us. My email spam rate is about 99%, I reckon. 
receiving or sending? Yeah, I, I think pretty much uh, if, if you want to actually get my attention or something, there's the alternative, you know, there's Slack for work, you know, there's Discord for social chats and just direct messaging. No one sends email to actually do anything with it, do they? Surely not. I, I mean, my, my whole thing is just newsletters and subscriptions and <laughs> hey, I, bought, I bought a t-shirt you now got to sign up for our newsletter and yeah so, so this is getting interesting because you know like as uh, technology becomes better like let's say like we uh, eventually get to the point where everybody wears like, like those uh, vr or ar glasses like just imagine like the, the overflow of spam that comes everywhere because the technology <laughs> allows you to have like stuff everywhere right you just look into the world and then you know, you just can have like a little, little ad uh, in the corner. Yeah, it sounds horrible. Like imagine walking yeah. by a Starbucks, and then it's yeah. like, oh, offer ten percent two for one, or and you just like, like you you already have that obviously with posters and stuff today. But yeah, it just would get so much more aggressive. It's just, ugh. it's gonna happen. You know, one thing I'm looking forward to is when the the AI bot that I have can just read the site, the the website for me and tell me what I want to know because I don't want to actually read it. If I read it, I'll have to be exposed to spam and bullshit. Um, well, what, what if the bot cannot, like the, the advertising is so good that now the AI cannot tell between the spam and the, the actual... Yeah, the ads find a way. Yeah. Have you noticed that's happening now in a really clever way inside YouTube? So the, uh, the the best YouTubers now are weaving advertising into their material. It's become product placement inside oh, yeah. their it's content true. videos. It is their material. But, but yeah. in a significant way. Like, you know how you'd see, like, the subtle Pepsi can in the movie? It's not that anymore. It's it's built into, like, the subject of what the what their content is. And it's, it, it's really insidious. They usually do like a little segue, like they, they talk about one topic and then they say like, oh, by the way, this, this and that. So they I, like you noticing that they don't do that anymore, right? They, they just like, <laughs> like included right. the it's in now. It's weaved into the story, into the into the content. By the way, this episode's brought to you by Apple. So <laughs> never heard of the iPhone. Please check it out. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to get some sponsors. That'd be great. We can talk about that. <laughs> if there are any sponsors out there, please call us. Yeah. Mm. Don't, definitely don't email us because we won't we'll, reply. Well, no, considering we'll, changing ourselves, uh, the name for Wikipedia. Yeah. Hey, the maker hat is sponsoring us right now. You know that's why. Yeah, we're yeah, here. yeah. Whoever we're made that, please don't <laughs> well, it's considering what? changing our name to Wikipedia, but Elon Musk didn't extend the offer. Unfortunately, it was one billion dollars to, to Wikipedia. Serious? You can't tell with him. So I don't know if he's being serious or not. I just don't think he doesn't matter. The lawyers are making serious. He's not serious, but if that actually happened, I'm sure he would <laughs> give the billion dollar like happily. And yeah. I'm pretty sure it's not going to happen. He would not. He would not give it happily. What's wrong with you? Have you not, not watched him with you? Like, you know, know. Like, his point was interesting, though. His point was people write all sorts of lies about me on my page. Uh, uh, I'm not happy about it. Yes, he had a point about it. I thought he was just trolling. But people write all sorts of lies about him on Twitter, like his own platform or X. Like, it's just... it, it would have been better if they just wrote back deal. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you go, oh, I didn't mean it. I'll go get the lawyer. Oh, the lawyers I just sued. 
because I paid too much for it because I had to do what I was told to do last time, what I said I was going to do. So it's, it, it's funny we're going on to Wikipedia. I got one piece of spam, just tying some things together this morning, literally this morning. And it was from a very serious company, not in random country, but out of America, US company. Their job yeah. is to uh, create profile pages on Wikipedia for you. So you pay them some money and they'll create a page for you, right? And write your, your bio or whatever and stick it up there. And they were very, very serious. It looked very professional. It, did, it was obviously spam, but it wasn't a scam, right? It looked, looked legit. I could not believe that there are companies now that do that. Why, why wouldn't there be though? It makes sense. How, how, much, how much, Army? I, I, didn't, I didn't ask, I didn't engage. Um, uh, I'll do yours for you. I don't think I'm important enough to have a page. <laughs> <laughs> no, once you have a page, you become important. That's the difference now. <laughs> yeah, well, it makes me wonder, like, are people paying for those pages now? Is that what's happening? I, I thought they got created once you got to a certain level and then there's enough of a, I guess, community or fan base or something that created it for you for free. Um, you're not supposed to create your own page, but yeah, yeah, it's 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 open. Like you can, people could do whatever. Of course. Yeah. Like, so who made Elon Musk's page? Did he pay for it? I doubt it. There's um, no way he paid for it. Oh, it would be thousands of people. Like it just would be. It would be thousands of editors. But I, I like. I think I like Wikipedia because it's like, it's completely open. Like anyone can edit it, but like it works. Like it's it's a modern miracle in today's age. I think, um, and the articles are like fairly like they come to some sort of like it's not just like totally biased like they sort of hmm. come to some sort of consensus right yeah it's really people interesting. pulling from different directions usually it comes to i mean maybe for a while it's unpleasant and it says some stuff that's not right but it tends to sway back and forth well it's a consensus but it might show like oh this person's got this thing they did this sort of wrong but then this was good like it just shows like more of a complete picture so hmm. yeah if we sat down to try and pitch that and design that and go, look, we just want open, it's going to be an actual factual database, high-level accuracy, and we'll just let anyone edit it. <laughs> you would not pass that as a design review these days, yet somehow it works. You know, it's it's great. Exactly. Yeah, interesting. So um, uh, you want to talk about servers? Yeah, it might take, it's probably sure. a meaty topic here, but yeah, ser serverless versus servers. I'm curious what people yeah, is this even still a topic of 2023. Is anyone still using serverless for anything meaningful? It's very popular. Serverless is great. Mm. All right, kick us off the bat, Craig. Oh, uh, look, I actually think serverless is really good to get started with Lambdas. You can build really complicated stuff quite simply, right, and get it running. Yeah. But I think there's a point where in your evolution, if you continue to exist, right, and your product does well and your traffic starts to increase, I mean, you're going to have problems with serverless, like your cold starts and other things like that. Uh, but you can build great evented systems and things like that. But as your traffic goes up, that cost-benefit analysis actually starts to go away from serverless more towards sort of traditional things. Um, and I'm just not saying like serverless.com, like as the that sort of platform, like you've got the CDK and those sorts of things where you can still spin up lambdas and, and, and a lot of that sort of stuff. But early on, I think it's fantastic. Later on, I think, you know, if you're going to be a longer term concern, you generally look towards getting rid of it. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'll add one other dimension, which is if you 
if you look at um, the bursty nature of your workload. So if you've got uh, like a burst of data that you need done right now, and then you're going to wait for a few hours, and then you need some more work done, and you don't know the the scale of that, then um, serverless is great. So serverless um, is like planning for no success, right? If you're not being used and not doing anything, you're sort of gone. Your costs are down low, which is in startup phase, kind of useful. Yeah. So that that works for. Uh, a small business that's growing because the workload is bursty in nature. You just don't know if you need any effort right now. Maybe you'll need it later. Um, uh, but even later on, once a business is mature, it, there are plenty of use cases that are that are of that nature. They're bursty. They're infrequent, and it's hard to predict the scale. So, so having serverless is helpful. But I'd say they're generally the minority. The the the, the the smaller use cases as a business gets larger, there are, there are often workloads that are much more predictable and consistent. And for that, you could, you know, it's better to have your own server. It's pretty popular though, like for yeah. sales serverless, that's very popular. Like it's become, it's obviously the main sponsor of Next.js and that's very popular. Like that's all serverless. And, um, I think it became popular uh, because Vercel did such a good job of creating a PaaS and creating a, a system where you could just run your service without much effort. I don't think it became popular because people liked serverless. Yeah, well, I think people. No, I think people do like it. Yeah. I think it became popular because it was free for most things that you do as well, right? So you go, oh well, we'll dip your toe. And then it was such a good platform to use, sort of like the early Heroku days when you were doing, you know, Ruby on Rails stuff. It just got rid of all that complexity. You didn't have to worry about do I need a server doing it? Just deploy it and. Yeah. You've got an extra well. The concept of it, like the idea that uh, you know, when you build a when you have a server running, you have kind of constantly like uh, kind of worry about it because it's up, you know, there's stuff happening. It's like alive a little bit, but serverless, it's uh, it doesn't like really like leave right. It's it's just like somewhere there, and then as soon as you need it, it's just gonna burst out and do something, and then after that, it's gonna be gone. Yeah, I think there's a lot of value in the idea. Uh, it's a better model for me, like uh, to like it's a little bit more stable than knowing that oh, there's this thing that needs to leave. You need to have like, like all those uh, states that uh, are gonna be like uh, changing. You know, yeah. See, I, I really know. love it for event-driven systems as well. So, like, if you did something like I'm gonna do a login, right, and then you've got you know, someone's registered on your site, you've got your new user, you can throw the event out onto EventBridge uh, for in AWS land and, you know, have another function fire off in the background to just go, oh yeah, new user, I'll send them a welcome email. Or, this, oh, new user, I'll, I'll check to see if they're fraudulent. And, you know, and just having these sort of distributed workflows go really well. So in my mind, that evolution sort of goes, mm, not exactly from serverless to a standalone server to run the whole thing, but sometimes serverless to run a whole server for the main API endpoint, but still use serverless for and, and Lambda functions for other things. And then you start going, well, do I need, like, what technology am I going to use to deploy this stuff and manage it and do those sorts of things? And there's lots to choose from. It's a fun space. Nigel, what do you think? Yeah, yeah what do you think, Nigel? A couple of instances where I'm using serverless at work. And one of them, one of them is, um, as you were saying, it's bursty, right? We, we have, we literally have um, a new whole data set arrives, and we have to process it as fast as we can. So we just have all the work gets shoved onto a queue, and then lambdas and or things spin up and, and consume them all. And it's 
and and it's happening like a week or every couple of weeks or something right so you just don't want servers sitting around doing nothing for the, the middle of the time and the the so that's what that's what i do as an employee go on <laughs> you get someone to sit there and spin them up um uh yeah and the other one is is like we've got this massive data set we have to process and again we're just trying to parallelize it and get it through as fast as possible and the when we had servers running it the servers running out of memory because because i don't know but by by processing all these things individually each each three each instance has got its own memory that it's doing so you don't have like them all trying to load the same data sets into memory at once and things and if it's got a queue right you don't really care about that cold start because it's just like oh it's just yeah. the delay doesn't yeah, really yeah. matter that's yeah it's a lot of i've been doing a lot of optimization stuff recently and one of the things we were doing was like a tile server for a for a map right so that as you're moving around the map the tiles are loading right and um that's basically it's actually an api gateway basically on the front of an s3 bucket at the moment so we could you could use other other technologies for that but um the um, yeah, but we the whole pipe of processing the data and and doing the queries and putting the data into the S3 bucket is all all serverless stuff. Um, it's it's working really well for us. It's good. I sort of I think the consensus I've I've heard and have come to is like for user facing requests, so it's going to like render JSON that's used to power a single page app or mobile app, or like render HTML. Gosh, imagine like if it's doing that. It shouldn't be probably serverless because just the yeah. cold start time can affect the user experience. So you just you yeah. don't want that delay. And the cold start's not just the initial request because you can warm them up. But like as the there's more, it might be like one instance that's warm, but then you've got like lots of requests coming in. So it needs to spin up another one. So then those users will get that delay. So it's not just the initial request. Yeah, but, totally. but there's plenty of ways of doing it really well, right? Like as you said, first cell, it, it works great, right? Like does it? I don't yeah. know if it's yeah, I, I don't know. I don't I, know if it, that's why they're pushing the edge compute because I think I think it's I think they've done some I, clever stuff to patch over the weaknesses of the cold start. One does, of the things, but that that's the hard part, right? Is that sort of cleverness? So these are all questions of scale. Like it's a tool to use in certain circumstances, and it's not applicable to everything, yeah. right? And it's the same with going. Oh well, we all just go to the cloud and go. Well, DHH was putting out that whole thing of going, yeah, but if you don't actually bring it all in-house instead of off the cloud, you know, you're doing a disservice to your own self on your bottom line. And, you know, he's got a valid point. Again, not something you would blank and say, everyone should just run your own server from, your, you know, yeah. from your study. Like, uh, it, but, like, uh, it's that context thing again. It all depends what you're optimizing for. So, is, yeah. you know, and, and like we were saying the other day, if you're a startup and you're trying to get ideas out there and do experiments, you don't know how much load you're going to get. You want to do something that scales really quickly. It doesn't cost you anything when no one's using it. You know, if, um, but if you know if you've got predictable load and predictable workloads, then you absolutely you need you know how big your server should be, right? But then again, you're going, if I'm going to spin up a server, now I have to go manage, you know, well, what, what instance should I use? How big should it be? How much memory should I give it? Um, what version of the operating system should it be? How do I patch the operating system? And, you know, it, all that stuff of having a server comes in. Like, I love yeah. the con concept of serverless, the idea that you go, I want this function to run as many times as it needs to whenever one of those things happens. Like, that idea is brilliant. Mm -hmm. like the, the complexity of actually getting it to work nicely and affordably, it's, it, you know. I mean, every, every business that sort of scales past a certain side is not one homogenous 
architectural pattern most of the time half of the time it's just a grab bag of every idea under the sun <laughs> in different areas doing different things because the nature of growth is if you're growing well and healthily you just got to move fast everywhere so you leave some of the old stuff you build some new stuff in something new and you go it's always temporary we'll get back to it you never do it's there every forever you know so um yeah horses for courses it's hard to choose as long as you one have some area, one area i've seen it work really well is uh databases so yeah. we're using um aws serverless v2 right now and it's freaking fantastic yeah so you know you've got a whole part of extra work to do it just scales up without any any delay it's just they've just done such a good job with is, it is that with blender or aurora uh it's aurora yeah. oh yeah yep. yeah and it's, this episode's um, brought to you by aws by the way yeah aws <laughs> please sponsor us you're looking for us <laughs> yeah. aws please update your run times <laughs> so bad they're not updating run times i'm actually forced to take you know my own action because of what that. are they doing they're really slow in updating run times like, and obviously the problems they're thing? facing of just millions of people using it and millions of services they want to make sure they do it right but that just ends up them not doing it yeah. what's the what's the like what sort of run times Oh, like, so yeah. if you, you, like your Lambda can be in any language, you know, from Ruby, .NET, JavaScript and those sort of things. So you get like a node runtime, right? It's, yeah. it's, not, it's not up to date, you know. Especially in JavaScript, it moves so quickly, right? Like it's no not one uses Node, it. .NET, like the .NET ones I'm using now, they're not being updated. It's mm -hmm. really, really slow. It's with all this, a lot of their servers too. Some get all the love, some get none. You know, like their Elasticsearch server, which was their fork of it to try and you know be mean to elastic.co uh you know that's just they move so much more slowly compared to elastic you know i don't know why you would want to use the one in aws just a strategic stab in the back I think it, it, it was a strategic thing of you know they yeah. didn't want to pay money to them or money although you know uh lately they've started building on that um so uh, they're, they're adding all sorts of interesting machine learning stuff to that, which is interesting. So the the new feature set, they're turning it into uh, essentially an embeddings database. So you can use, um, you know, AWS OpenSearch. I think it's called OpenSearch, right? To, yeah. To do embeddings. It's nuts. I'm going to stop talking about them because they're not sponsoring this episode. Let's <laughs> and, they, and they won't now after we just said that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, well, we should keep um, all, like all kinds of companies until like one of them catches us. Like, well, oh, well, <laughs> we should we will, do that. It like, might take two years. Yeah. We will sell out for money or even AWS credits. We. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that that's a fool as well, and always fight chasing those credits. <laughs> cool. Like, well, did, did anyone coffee. have any picks, or should we wrap up? No, yeah, yeah, interesting yeah. picks for the week. Interesting software or tool, yeah. anything we've seen. I've got one for you. Um, I've been playing with Biome.js to replace our linters and formatters because I'm on a bit of a, you know, performance for the dev cycle kick at the moment because you guys picked on me. Um, Just delete and, the linters and formatters, problem solved. Yeah, well, the ones we have, I refuse to tell you how long they take on the code base and um, how they work. They're quite terrible. Um, and when we mentioned we we're going to look at it, you know, uh, one of the devs, uh, Jude, who you guys have worked with, you know, just almost in a fit of Tourette's yelled at um, Biome.js. Turns out that was like from Rome. Didn't work as a company. Failed. The guy 
not getting paid, decided, ah, oh, just keep working on it. And it's actually really good. Like, it's so fast. He's rewritten the whole, you know, all the whole tool chains. Obviously, it's, it's it for JavaScript. It's in Rust. Um, so it did our whole code base of reformatting, fixing, and everything, and it's sub-seconds. Hmm. Yeah, so you could actually do that in a pre-commit hook and actually have it not get in your way. I hate the pre-commit hooks, but when it's that Don't put anything in a pre-commit hook. Oh, well, that's my theory, right? I'm, but on CI, it runs fast. But you go, it's running so fast, you go, could almost do that. It can almost work if it's that invisible. Because I, I like it to, um, a great feature is like ABS breaks. Hmm. You don't need to know it's there, right? You don't need to know how it works or anything. But when you need it, it breaks it's just, and it won't let you commit, and you really won't need to commit because you need to do it. Oh, there's always no verify, isn't there, on the commit? <laughs> put it into your build pipeline, let the build do it. It's fine. Yeah. No, well, got yeah. it. I, I, I love it. Check, check it out. It's it's really nice, easy to set up. Um, good VS Code integration. Who cares about every other editor? Um, I don't use them. <laughs> and uh, no, it's it's quite nice. I like it a lot. Love it, Vincent. What do you think? You have one? I'm just asking, like that linter that you mentioned. Does it uh, does it like fix the lin the the style, or does it like block you when you have a wrong it's style? Actually, it's actually a bit of a tool chain, right? So there's a formatter which will let you reformat right the file to actually fix it there's the linter which tells you whether they've done it wrong they're, they're actually aiming to get rid of like just runners and things like that as well they, they want a whole complete tool chain um, um it well. also adds a passive aggressive aggressive comment on your pr which is you know oh yeah not, not feels like that. a human you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> no but there's there's a github action as well which is all there ready and it just works straight out of the box quite nicely and you just put it in as a step and the world yeah. is good um, it, does, it does TypeScript checking as well, which was nice for me because the TypeScript yeah. check sucks. I don't know. The thing I'm concerned about is that if it's going to like, like if I have something like critical bug to fix and then suddenly like the linter is going to stop me, it's like, no, you cannot check in this code because uh, yeah, you have like a missing... Uh, Vincent, like, just, just write pretty code and, you, and you'll be sorted. Yeah. <laughs> that, but, that's a separate thing, Vincent. You can always, you can use linters and formatters to, to help you. You can yep. use it in the editor. You can, I, I use them in the editor all the time. So as I'm typing, they, they fix things or tell me if something's wrong. Yep. But they shouldn't stop yep. you from committing. They don't have to. Bad, 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 bad linters are terrible. Good linters are the greatest thing on earth. Yeah. I've got some uh, stories yeah. about linters going wrong, but okay. any other picks? I've got a pick. Uh, Zellige uh, is the thing I've been playing with recently. It's, a, um, it's almost like a replacement for Tmux. Um, uh, so yeah, it's really good. It's like lets you split your your um, terminal into different windows and panes and and things like that. But it also has the idea of sessions that you can connect to and disconnect to. The thing it does really nicely that Tmux doesn't do is that it's literally just got a menu bar on the bottom that says these are the key combinations you're trying to do next, right? So as you're doing things, it's like that the interface is learnable, like as you because all the key combinations are, are obvious and they're right there. Um, you can customize it and get rid of those if you want to. And you can have um, different workspaces that you've got set up with different combinations of windows open and things, and even processes that are running in a watch mode that you know you can have running. So you can have your tests sitting in a window running constantly and your code, you know, if you use Vim or whatever, um, yeah, to edit your code, then you can have that open at the same time or whatever. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's a whole workflowy thing, but just using it as a way to, to Split my terminals and and uh, like if you want to if you want to scroll up and down in the in the the buffer right you can just 
type a couple of keys and it, and it just pops the buffer open in an editor in your character and then you can just search it right and stuff like that rather than having to scroll up and down and find the bit that you were trying to find so there's a few simple things like that that they've done really nicely and it's got a plugin um architecture as well and the plugins are written in wasm so you can write them in anything you like and compile them to, to wasm which i thought was very cute um yeah in, in wasm yeah right <laughs> so, so it's the future it's the future project. patrick loves wasm <laughs> <laughs> he's only I making do. his own language in it yeah of course he does yeah too i was just listening to all the features nigel you know of all the key combinations learn the keys i actually only i only use the arrows the occasional you know a to z and control z a lot you know just, yeah just, I think, I think there's yeah. a couple of things it does well actually like you know you can go actually i want i've split my thing into panes and i want that one to pop up full screen for a minute so you can make it into a floaty window that pops up over the top of everything else um just you know, and yeah, things like that. It's just it's just, it's just been designed by a developer that that obviously works in it all day long, so it, everything's easy to do. Yeah, it's good. Cool. Uh, Pat, any picks? Uh, I'll choose. Um, there's this thing I tried playing around with called Cargo Lambda. So it lets you deploy sort of related to the topic. Lets you write a little Rust function and deploy it to Lambda, and so it was pretty nicely made. Um, uh, for an AWS idiot like me, um, I've managed to get something deployed, and um, yeah, it's it pretty nice. I, I heard a lot of um, good stuff about the speaking of the cold start problem of how Rust was meant to be the speediest, but I, I was disappointed. So I'm kind of want other people to try it and see if they can get get if I'm just holding it wrong. Um, but yeah, it was it was pretty it was pretty it was pretty nice. Where were you deploying it to? Was it local or um? Because sometimes you you do those stats and then you realize ah oh, the person who was doing the stats lives right next to the data center. Yeah. Um, uh the I deployed to US East one the one region to rule them all, and then I deployed to Sydney. Yeah. So um, Sydney was better, but I still saw like a second cold start, whereas this other thing was suggesting like the cold start will be like. I don't know, 25 milliseconds, and it's like, I'm not seeing that, so, yeah. Awesome. There was an interesting thing I saw recently that was um, one of the Strange Loop videos, actually. There's a guy, it's a project called Cursorless, and it's a plugin for VS Code, um, and it allows you to, the, the guy's history is that he had some issues with his hands at some point, and he's a programmer, so he was stuffed, like he couldn't type, so he couldn't program, so he, you know, so he basically ended up coming up with a, a voice-driven way to, to code, um, and so he's got this this language that you can use to talk to your computer to to do rapid edits to your code. Uh, and but well, one of the which in itself is a really interesting idea. But one of the other things I noticed in it was this concept that um, uh, when it's looking at a document, there might be multiple ways you might refer to that document. So you might be saying I want you want to refer to something on your current line, or you might be saying I want to refer to something within the fact that I know this is a a markdown document, so it's got sections. So I might, I might want to refer to the section, whereas if it's a if it's a language, it might have blocks, right? And then so there's all these different contexts within which you can refer to things, and depending on the document you've got open, it depends what contexts are available to you. Um, and I was thinking about because I've been thinking about. Um, I always feel that uh, those 
editors that are context uh, syntactically syntactically aware. Like you know how you got refactoring tools and things, right? There's like an AST being maintained by the by the editor. There are some editors that go well. All you can do is make refactorings on your on your AST, right? And then um, and I can't remember what they're called. Uh, anyway, there's a there's a class of editor that's like that. But you always end up going, well, actually, right now, I just want to type some text or copy, some, copy and paste some text from somewhere else, and it's not syntactically correct right now. It will be once I've fiddled with it, right? <laughs> or you get some data and you want to paste it in and then, you know, cop select all the commas and then, you know, you want to do that text manipulation. And interestingly, in that cursor list, he's got a, like, you, you, you start referring to the, the, the thing in front of you as just text as opposed to referring to it as code and and it sort of ma magically switches in context like it's it's a different word you're using so it's it knows the different contexts but i just love the idea of um the ability to have a bunch of keyboard shortcuts for example of how i want to do for refactorings and whatever in c sharp i, I use um Visual Studio with with um, ReSharper plugged in, and and I got so good at all the refactorings. You can just code feels like it's Play-Doh. You can just go, you know, pull objects out over there, put up another method method over there. It feels so nice to code in, um, and I kind of miss that in some other languages I'm playing with. Anyway, did he, did he yeah. have it cooked up to copilot like a copilot thing? I'm guessing he didn't. He hasn't. That, that's, that's that's one in the pipeline. I think. It's one of that's, the but that's fascinating to me because it's like an example of this person. They were constrained, like they just literally yep. had no other way. So then they, some you know, somehow worked out a solution to it. But like maybe all of us could be using something like that in the future. Like that's yeah. what I think that's what some people think with this copilot thing. Where in copilot you just write the comment and the code gets bladed underneath. Like oh, I'm just going to be dictating to my computer the comments and I'll just sit back. Yeah, that's it. And in fact, he's he he now he's got full access to his hands again. Everything's working fine, hmm. but he still uses it only as a daily driver. So it's like it's become this thing where you can you can think at a different level of abstraction when you're talking to your computer and telling it what you're trying to do next. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's kind of like how Vi is like commands. You're t you're telling an editor what command you want it to do as opposed to doing it. Uh, it's that level of abstraction away. It's really hang interesting. On, hang on a second. Is it Vi or Vi? A Vi, yeah, Vi. Vi. <laughs> I was going to say, oh my god, is this one of those things where the world is split in two ways? Guarantee you, that's a controversial subject. Oh, people I have say no Vim, not Vim, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know what I really like about this story is the idea that you know you can actually code something with the voice, and I do believe that there's a real future in that. That okay, it doesn't exist yet because. Um, yeah, like right now, it's it's very difficult to just write code with the voice. But I can imagine that at some point in the future, you can use just gestures and voice in order to code. So no longer like typing stuff. And then uh, watching somebody program will be a lot more interesting. You know, just imagine like somebody just talking and then moving the hands and everything. We can actually like have uh, finally like video stream of somebody coding and then being able to watch it. You know, and it, Hollywood that... movies. Quite interesting. It's not going to be like those your characters going around. It's going to be oh, like, no. and Does that mean if I go like to give it the finger, like it adds like ear slint ignore above my line, like it tells the linter to shut up. Yeah, I like it. You'd have Always. to use because it doesn't understand. Oh my god, let's please wrap. Let's please wrap. <laughs> hey, I thought that our meeting stuff can do. Uh, oh, I think it's Zoom, right? Like, I thought when we were doing this, like it was detecting that I was doing it. That was Zoom. And then, Oh, that Zoom, oh, 
<laughs> I was doing it. I was expecting like. Uh, oh, no, mate. I thought I, I thought it was. Uh... I thought it was on Google, mate. I've, I've got, I've got it. I, I just turned it off. Will it, does it work? Oh, it's, yeah. a, it's a Mac. There we go. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there you go. What the hell is this? It's this ridiculous Mac OS feature that I've turned off because it's just like ridiculous. I don't, I don't have that feature. This is so people, that you don't want that feature. People were finding it in there. There was the story that went around. Someone was in their therapy session and then they like did like a signal, and then like fireworks went off, and it was just like totally like. Killed the vibe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. folks. Let's, let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it. We'll see you all in the next episode. Bye for now. Bye.